G'day listeners, you're probably thinking, that's not David or Tim's voice, and you'd be right. My name is Lucas Day, and after drinking and chatting to the lads for the episode titled, Creating is a Matter of Passion, Not Time, the time has come for me to release my new single, End of the Day. Head to your favourite music streaming service and search Lucas Day, or go to lucasdaymusic.com for more info. Enjoy the episode. Catch-22 is a paradoxical situation from which an individual cannot escape because of contradictory rules or limitations. The first example we encounter from the book comes from Yossarian when he's dealing with Dr. Danica. And it goes, there was only one catch, and that was Catch-22, which specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind, or was crazy, and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask... And as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Or would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yusserian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22 and let out a respectful whistle. even realize that the term catch 22 was because of this book like the, before the book the term catch 22 didn't exist no, the book is the beginning of oh. the book is, and everyone uses the term there are songs called catch 22 yeah and i wonder if people even know that it's because of this absurd very long book written <laughs> in the 50s by an ex-world war ii bombardier i'm guessing for a while a lot of people probably knew and it was probably something that a whole generation could use as code for, again, that ridiculous paradox. If I do this, I'm screwed. If I do this, I'm screwed. But I'm screwed for different reasons and I can't escape being screwed. I think everyone at some point in their life has felt like that. Yeah, and now we have a phrase for it, Catch-22. Yeah. <laughs> now, listeners, we've dived right in with that intros. So oh, yeah. I will quickly do intros because we're not going to lose all those good bits of understanding Catch-22. Sitting to my right, as ever, being a perky person whose hair is back to having a silver tint, I am told. <laughs> Welcome, Tim Wiffen. Thank you very much for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. And your voice is sounding better. Yes, I, I feel much better today, so that's good. He's cold-free. Yeah, and hay-viva-free. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Well done, you. <laughs> Soon to be sponsored by Telfast, I think. Mm, or vodka. Yeah, yeah that'll do. <laughs> and sitting opposite me, the man who decided we should read Catch-22. Welcome back, Luke. Thanks for having me, guys. And very nice reading there at the beginning. Mm. I feel like you two have very deep podcast-worthy voices, and I feel like I've got to come here and almost drop an octave just to just to <laughs> fit in. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the closer you get to the microphone, microphone, the deeper you get. All right. So you just yeah. got your yeah. deep voice. There it is. Thank you. Now That's you have okay. to remember, don't <laughs> breathe on it or you start sounding like Darth Vader. <laughs> yes. Now, I haven't read this book purposefully, which sounds like a cop out. And No, nah, it's a very good idea that always at least one of us mm. can ask the welcome to the new thing question. And a new thing I have already been introduced to is that uh, I didn't realize that this book was not named after a concept, but in fact defined the concept, which is really interesting, that quote that you gave, because it establishes Catch-22 and then 
defines it but doesn't kind of labor the definition it just it kind of gives you the example and then the reader just is like oh that okay this is what a catch-22 is yeah we almost need to issue a spoiler warning before we do any of these episodes <laughs> well because unashamedly it's just going to be spoilers as far as the eye can see i think if you if you don't if you don't want to know, switch it off now. Yeah, go, go away and read the book yeah. and then come back if you know, everything we've said so far is interesting. And maybe that should always be our book warning. Mm. Yeah. If in a few minutes in, you're going, wow, this sounds so interesting. You know, pause, go away and you know, get the audio book. And particularly in this case, the person that reads the audio book, Trevor White, is either the most amazing actor or genuinely loves the book and can hear the characters in his own head because his voices for the characters are just perfect and his understanding of the book the concept of catch 22 the insanity of the situation that these bomber crews find themselves in is just yeah such a good way to to present the book to an audience and i feel like in the last in the last quarter of the book if you know what happened before you before you got there, it would take away a lot of the impact because for me, the last quarter was probably the most, the most shocking and it would take away from the lessons probably that I learned from it. If you went in knowing it, cause there's that, that feeling, that real unsettled feeling. That Almost you have. dread. Yeah. You're wondering, okay, this book is about you, Osarian. He's a character, but there's no guarantee Osarian is going to survive the book. Mm. And as the book goes on, because it's about people in bomber crews during World War II and the Italian campaign, you, know, you start getting the sense that none of them are going to make it to the end. And initially when people are lost, it's kind of a flippant thing that there's still enough of the crews left. That Yosarian feels their loss more, it seems, than a lot of other characters. Mm. But there's always still 10 people to get drunk with. There's 10 people to talk about how terrible it is they have to do more missions. His best friend Dunbar is still there and they can still pretend to be sick and go put themselves in the hospital for a week to get out of bombing runs for a week. There's always something to do while enough characters are still alive. Yeah. And as they do slowly start to uh, are killed in various ways, there's a comedic sort of tinge to the way that a lot of them die or it's sort of dressed up. Or they disappear in a cloud or they crash into the sea and nothing's found. Yeah. So it's deliberately you've got loss, but it's not, it's not horrific. No. And it's still surrounded by this, these absurd conditions that they find themselves in. And then in that last quarter of the book, a lot of that, the lightheartedness and that absurdity disappears and you're just left with these tragic deaths and you don't realise how you've, you don't almost realise that it's slowly been happening from the very beginning as, as Yusserian has lost this support network around him and then you get to that final trip to Rome when he basically sees everything for what it is with the tragedy, um, the destruction, the raping and the pillaging that had probably been going along for the entire book that you're unaware of because you're seeing everything through this bubble that Eusarian lives in where they go on these bombing runs, then they go away on their wreck leave to Rome and they have these drunken parties and there are prostitutes and all of this stuff that they're enjoying. 
and it makes no mention of the tragedy that is existing around them or you sort of just sort of catch glimpses of it. And then towards the end, his, the support's gone and all you're left with is the tragedy. And I found myself, when he has that last trip to Rome, going, this isn't a good time anymore. The book's not even funny anymore. And I've been laughing for the first three quarters of this book, but this tragedy has been going along the entire time. And for me, that was a, there was, it almost felt like it was a bit of a pit in my stomach. Yeah, you almost feel guilty. Yeah. Why didn't I switch on? Yeah. So listeners, a bit of context here. They're based on an island off the Italian coast. And initially you don't really get any sense of the local population on the island because they just do some of the menial jobs around the base. So it really is this tiny world of the bomber squadrons, the support crews, and you know the American military hospital there near the base. So they live in this incredible bubble, and then when they go to Rome, it's all based around either the officer's apartment, the enlisted apartment in Rome, or the brothels or bars they end up in. So everything is going from bubble to bubble to bubble. They're either in the plane and it can be frightening or on the base and it can be boring and there's the anxiety of the next mission or there's some stupid gag going on or they've put themselves back in hospital or one of the senior officers does something, you know, crazy. Or they're in Rome and it's a few days of partying. But what's incredible with it is there's no real sense of time. And yet if you work out roughly what's going on in the war as this is said, Best case scenario, I think the book happens over about seven to eight months maximum. So all this is happening in probably less than 240 days, which gives it more of a context. This whole bomber unit of fresh young people have clearly arrived, have started with, you have to do this many missions. Was it start at 30 or 35? Something like that, 30 missions, I think. And just starts creeping up because the commanding officer, Colonel Cathcart, wants to be famous because his command did more raids than any other unit. And by the time, you know, nearly everyone is dead and Yosarian really is at breaking point and is seeing through the illusion of being with his friends, life on the base, partying in Rome, they're up to over having to do 70 missions. So if we put that into the 240 days, what it means is these crews are doing you know, a raid that can kill them or their friends in which they can devastate some chunk of Italy every three days. So this, most crews are probably doing two raids a week. And this is very late in the war as well. Yeah, so we're, this we're was, late in 44. We're just going into winter, you know, December 44. So I think at, at this point everyone's aware that it's a fairly well foregone conclusion that the Allies were going to win and it's just a matter of how much longer it's going to drag out. And I think this is where Yossarian starts to um, – because I'm sure he probably started the missions all for the cause and wasn't questioning what he was doing and would go out and drop his bombs and then as time goes on and – I suppose he starts to lose some people. He starts to talk about he hates doing it because the people on the ground are trying to kill him. He says that a lot. The people on the ground well, are trying to kill him. Everyone's trying to kill him. Yeah, and he goes, well, that shouldn't make any difference. They're trying to kill me. And he, in his mind, the war is won. So why... Should he do it? Why should he be the one mm. that does it? And his best friend early on, 
Yeah, nightly. He's someone who is all for the cause and says to you, Sarah, and well, if, and a few people say it to me over the journey, well, if that was everybody's attitude, if everyone's attitude was, well, if the war's won, why should I have to die? What would, what would you think? And he says, well, everybody would be crazy not to, to think that, that why should I be the one that is sacrificing myself just so Cathcart can push his own wheel, will push his own wheelbarrow along trying to get his promotion to general because that's what his ulterior motive is. Mm. He doesn't care about the effectiveness of the unit. No. He cares, does the unit look amazing enough for him to be promoted to general? Yeah. So he's given up on fighting the war as a war and the war has turned into a way for him to promote his career. And you have a discussion in part of the book of some of the officers going, they're going to stay on as a reserve air force after the war because it guarantees them this much money and continued flying time. Mm. So right in the midst of the war, because they live in this strange bubble of being bomber crews, they're going from a base that's relatively safe, having the moment of abject terror, and then coming back to the base that's relatively safe. And you can see that psychologically, I'm not sure what would have been worse, to be on the ground and constantly at the front for extended periods, or to literally be fly-in, fly-out warfare, which in some ways, psychologically, you're on more of a, a... sort of a yo-yo or a roller coaster. Mm. You know, the book makes clear. Mm. How many jobs though are like that? You know, is there is there a related uh, a rela- relatability in the story because a lot of people feel like the footmen for other kind of motives for other goals, you know? Well, I'd say a lot of warfare is more like this now. Mm. Because people can be helicoptered in do the job and come back out. Mhm. So you have so you know early in Iraq, for example, where they decided to put all the major bases outside of Iraqi cities. Mm-hmm. So you would be in relative safety, and then have to you know go into Baghdad or another major city and risk being hit with IEDs on the way in to do your patrol. So in a sense, that thing of relatively safety and then straight, you know, into hell and then back to relatively safety sort of has become characteristic of a lot of normal or a lot of modern warfare. I think to to tie back to obviously what Colonel Cathcart and then his subordinate Lieutenant Colonel Corn, both of them are just ladder climbers. That's all they're interested in is the promotion. And I feel like the whole book is a big criticism of bureaucracy. Mm. And I think if it probably relates to any huge hierarchical structured organisation in which people are interested in promotion and quite often the underlings find themselves, their only point of their work is in service of their boss getting to the next level. Mm -hmm. So Colonel Cathcart wants more missions because it's going to reflect well on him. And one of the generals, General Dreedle, I think, likes a nice tight bomb pattern because it makes for good bomb photographs. Mm. Even though a looser bomb pattern does more destruction, he wants a nice clean bomb pattern. So mm. Colonel Cathcart's direction to all of his bombardiers is a nice tight bomb pattern. That's all he's interested in because it'll be a feather in his cap and not a black eye. He talks about that a lot. He wants feathers in his caps and and not black eyes. And there are so many pe- there are so many people in there who appears the only reason they exist is to be promoted. Mm. So there's another guy, Colonel Scheitzkopf, but he starts very early on in the book being obsessed with parades. Yeah, and, and he's he wants the general to, at the end. Sorry, you're mm, right at the start. So he's, he's a, a colonel. colonel. Yes, and he wants to win the parades, 
and he eventually does find a way to win the parade and he sort of disappears for a while and then comes back in later on where he um, is deployed on this island. And he says he doesn't really know much else other than parades. So can I be in charge of the parades? And he goes, well, we don't do parades here. This is him talking with Colonel Corn, or Colonel Cathcart, I think. He says, we don't do parades here. And he goes, well, can I tell the men that I'm going to cancel the parades? That way, you know, I still know, I know how to cancel a parade. And Colonel Cathcart goes, well, no, how about you don't cancel the parade? How about you just tell them we're postponing the parade next Sunday. So the men think there's a chance of a parade, but every week you can send out a note telling that the parade has been postponed. And Colonel, Colonel Schweitzkopf at that time says, thinks that's the most brilliant idea ever. And then one of the generals hear about this new colonel that's come to the island who is wanting to put these parades on, but they're being postponed. And that's what gets him promoted to general in the end. Mm, something bureaucrat. And this is this key thing about the difference. You've got people at the coalface, the bomber crews, who are fighting the war. And part of what causes Yosarian so much trouble is his bosses aren't interested in fighting the war. They're interested in their careers or internal politics or internal bureaucracy. So it's that separation between why are we here, what's the overarching objective reason, but people's subjective ways of you know, making the best or getting something out of what's going on. So within this hierarchy that's meant to fight a war, most people are only marginally directly contributing to fighting the war. Mm. Most people are busier feathering their own nest or shaping their own career or actively, because they don't have to deploy and fly missions, making sure they think about anything else that's more entertaining and more self-serving. Captain Black's loyalty pledges. Yeah. They're another great example. So there's, an, there's, there's so many characters in this book. I think it wasn't too bad on the audio book because the different characters had different voices. But if you're going to read it, you'd almost, I know you can get them on the internet where they actually have like a, a character map because mm-hmm. these people come in for short periods of time, they disappear and they come back. But there was a guy, Captain Black, and Captain Black comes up with the idea that it would be more motivating for the men before each mission if they signed a loyalty pledge. So he does that. Someone else hears about it and goes, these loyalty pledges are a great idea. In order, before they get their meal in the mess hall, I'm going to make them sign a loyalty pledge. So Captain Black goes, well, all of a sudden my idea doesn't seem that great anymore because they're doing it in the mess hall now. I want to be recognized, so I'm going to make the men sign two loyalty pledges before they go on their mission. So this progresses and more people get the idea and it gets to the point where all the men now don't have any time to do anything else because they're constantly signing 10, 15 loyalty pledges. They're singing the national anthem before they go on. They're singing the, or they're saying the pledge of allegiance. And it's just this steamrolling effect. And it's, it's taken something that you would see in many organizations and many businesses. And they, they, and Heller does it all the time. He takes these little ideas, but takes them to their logical extreme. Well, they're illogical. Again, oh, they're this, illogical. Is, this is sort of the link with you know the last episode Luke did with us of talking about Camus and the absurd. This was the logical next book because again, it's let's take you know war, which is already fairly crazy, and make it even more absurd. You know, everything they're going through is bad enough, but each time these officers take a crazy idea and push it to its limits, they just make life even more absurd for Yosarian and the other bomber crews. Milo Minderbinder is another good example of someone who 
takes, again, it's a very simple idea. He's assigned as the mess officer. And in order to become the mess officer, because I think he wanted it, because it would mean that he wouldn't have to fly the missions. So he takes these eggs that he's managed to get hold of, cooked in butter to one of the majors, and the majors are like, well, this is fantastic. Where did you get this butter from? And he says that he's got a contact on another island that he can get the butter from, and he and this major is going to be able to have eggs in butter for the rest of the war if he makes him the mess officer. So he gets made the mess officer. And the meals that he starts producing, I mean, you can imagine back in- It's the highest end mess ever. Yeah. You know, they're having lamb imported from the highlands of Scotland and he brings in this lamb and there are other people on other in other countries that would like the lamb. So he takes that lamb and he exports it and trades it for some baklava from another, from Turkey. Someone wanted some Polish sausage. So apparently there is a um, Swiss Polish sausage exchange. There's a, yes, there's the Swiss Polish sausage exchange because Poland's too far behind enemy lines. So they take the sausage from Poland into Geneva. He flies to Geneva with peanuts that he got from another country and swaps it. And he eventually starts rebranding aircraft as M M&M and M Enterprises. M and M Enterprises importer and exporter of fine meat and produce or something <laughs> like that. And then what happens, though, is he makes it gets a, crazy. Yeah, it gets kids. crazier. So he makes a bad deal on Egyptian cotton because he hears the price of Egyptian cotton or something is tanking. So he buys up the entire Tank supply crop. of Egyptian cotton. Now, what happens is somewhere along the line, the price of Egyptian cotton tanks, but because he's made the commitment to it, he needs to he he keep buying. Yeah, he keeps buying the he has to keep buying the Egyptian cotton from the supplier, and he can't offload it anymore because nobody wants it. So he starts losing money. What he does is he starts taking contracts from the Germans, and he starts sending his mess hall officers out to defend. German positions from the Allied bombing because he needs the money. But he always clarifies <laughs> it that everyone on the island has a share in this syndicate that runs the mess hall. And what's good for the, Synd- what's good for the syndicate is good, good for, for everyone because everyone. everyone has a share. So anytime the syndicate makes money, he makes money or the, they make money. And what's wrong with that? Everyone's just making a buck. What a brilliant social commentary. Well, it is because in the end, Milo stands in the control tower calling in his own bombers from M&M Enterprises to bomb the base <laughs> because he's made a deal with the Germans because he's so desperate for money mm. to pay for the cotton in Egypt. He makes a deal with the Germans to hit his own base. That's ridiculous. And then he, he gets called up and he says, well, the Germans are part of the syndicate as well. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the, Ger- the Germans have a share in this syndicate, <laughs> which is just, it's just magnificent as, as it unfolds. And Orr and Yossarian go on a little trip with Milo Minderbinder on one of his little exporting runs. And it turns out, you know, they go to an island in another country and he gets off the plane and Milo's- Malta, where he's he's lieutenant governor in Malta. He's the lieutenant governor in Malta because of his importing and exporting. He's brought so much prosperity to the island. He basically owns the joint. And he's a governor somewhere else. and he's Somewhere on the North African coast. Yeah, he's a mayor in another country. And he's a shah or something in Persia. (laughs) He is. He is. And it sort of it sort of culminates where he bombs his own base, and then tells one of the pilots, "Now come back and do a gun run." Yeah, and this is the point where you stop laughing and again have the whole guilty pit of your stomach thing of, "Oh crap!" 
but don't bomb the mess hall because once they're finished bombing Everyone the airfield, need they need to be able to land and come in and have a warm meal. And it's just it's it does it does get really really weird in places. And yeah. before then, he I suppose he's all about profiteering from war. And you would sit there and go, well, that would never happen. Back and you're then, like, yes, you would, because all these officers who are setting up for career progression, if they can impress a general by putting on a better meal, why wouldn't you lend a plane and a crew to do a, a you know essentially a freight run? So it would be as bad as Milo's world, no. But in a war that's gone on for so many years, it's getting near the end, careerism starting to be an issue. The whole point of the book, it seems to be, take any idea that could exist within a bubble. It's this whole idea. If you say something a hundred times, it becomes true. Mm. Milo says thousands of times, you know, everyone's a member of the syndicate. Everyone gets a share. So what's good for the syndicate is good for everyone. And he says that so many times that he doesn't even blink about bombing his own base and then getting his own pilots to do a gun run on his own base. And this is the thing, Heller pushes every idea where you lie to yourself and say, I'm going to abjure, you know, ignore the objective world and just see my little subjective bit of the world. But you take that subjectivity to the point where inevitably whatever it constructs, the construct has to fracture, has to break into pieces. And time and time again in the book, you find yourself laughing right to the point where the subjective construct shatters. And you realise, yeah, that little niggling sense of guilt you had about 30 minutes ago in the recording, yeah, you should have paid attention to that because once again, Heller is showing us how if we're in a group that tells a story to itself about what's going on, what it means, who we are, and do we matter, and we keep buying that story and we don't see anything bigger, we will build the most amazing construct that will then come down you know, and shatter on us. And that's what he does so well is he draws he draws us into that construct. Like you, you start to believe that these are the rules that this island is governed by. Mm. And I sort of early on thought that it, this is just an absurd world that they live in and it's almost like an alternate reality. But towards the end, you realise that it wasn't an alternate reality at all. And this was just these crazy rules that were existing on on this island. And I think there's a lot of times that you find yourself where you would look at that situation and go, well, no, not me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't drink the Gatorade. Yeah. But you would because your friends did. Yeah, and, and you're you all would there. Because all your friends' friends did. And that's the powerful thing about his idea. Yosarian is the first to go, this is crazy. And it makes his life a misery because it alienates him for everyone around him. Power starts squishing him. So the important thing is while all this craziness is going on, these bomber squadrons are still doing their mission. They're still doing their couple of raids a week. And what does the big crushing, crunching machine want? That the missions happen. Mm. As long as the missions happen, who cares what weird stuff is going on in the background? Yeah, It doesn't affect the machine grinding forward. And so often what you see with big institutions, big organisations, is exactly that. The mission is still achieved in some shape and form, immaterial of all the other crazy stuff that happens because humans are involved. And is that, is that okay, um, I'm going to take this a lot broader now because that's all that is coming to my mind mm-hmm. because this is so poignant even, really. You know, we, we, we have the wrong goals. 
in the book they have the wrong goals the the goals are how many missions can we do not how effective are the missions the goal is because mm. the mission is the subjective thing if i survive my missions i can go home mm. who cares if we win the war that should be the critical thing but very quickly it's for personal survival what is the most important thing mm. for survival of my friends what is the most important thing so how would you make the war pertinent to the individual yeah, really the pertinence of the war comes up consistently because if they have to go back and do a mission again, they've seen that, well, because we didn't get the target the first time, we're going to have to go back and do it again. Mm. So Yossarian gets his medal for telling his pilot to go around a second time. Now he knows what the target looks like. He can get a better you know, uh, bead on the bridge they need to destroy. Mm. And he gets yelled at for taking the risk but also gets a medal for getting the bridge. But the point is, they're bomber crews. They're so far above and away from what happens. The flak from the ground streaks up towards them. Their bombs streak down towards the ground. So they're in a unique situation where they enter this fear bubble and exit it, knowing they're going to have to go back in the fear bubble again in a couple of days' time. Mm. So I'm not sure they can ever get past counting how many missions because of the nature of the way they're fighting and contributing within the war. Right. So then, well, that's fairly damning, right? So let's re- let's relate this back to something we've talked about before on the podcast, which is, let's say, on a societal level, on an economic level, we're looking at the wrong goals. We've talked to Phil Lorne mm, about how GDP is not a good measure of what we should be trying to achieve as a country and mm. on an economic basis we should be looking at something like gpi genuine progress indicator mm. so what is the the gpi in catch 22 well yeah. if you had to have one it would be something like if we can get this bridge then this infantry and armored unit will not have to throw themselves at it mm. over the next week and they've been getting this level of casualties per day and every you know, every day we can remove from them having to do that before the bridge is taken or destroyed mm-hmm. will save this many lives. I, th- I think towards the end, there there isn't a point anymore. They're just doing missions for mission's sake. So mm-hmm. I think beware of a beware of a structure that says which, your job is to bomb. Yeah, or w- even more broadly speaking, beware of any structure whose reason for existence is itself. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of what was happening by the end. The only reason the whole machine, yeah, the only reason the whole thing existed was to keep the thing going. Mm -hmm. But it was almost like it was too; it would be too much work to shut it down, Mm -hmm. or it would be. Then all of a sudden, you have all these generals and corporals and lance corporals. All of a sudden, don't have anything to do. Well, if they don't have anything to do, that's fine. But don't just keep bombing for bombing's sake. Like I think they. They could, at one point they could have bombed a road, but instead they chose to bomb the town to bring the town down on top of the road because that would make for a more impressive bomb pattern. Mm. Yeah, so again, you start doing things that have nothing to do with the mission. Yeah. Because you get that creep from the subjective and the lies that people tell each other to make peace with their world. The lies start intruding and shaping the objective. You know, we can give you lots more examples of this, but I think... An important point in the book is the point where it pivots from you can kind of laugh along with the absurdity, you can laugh along with Yossarian's antics, you can laugh along with them partying in Rome, you know, as they're making out that all the prostitutes love their jobs and are having a great time and love partying with all the Americans. Mm-hmm. You know it's not true, but such mm-hmm. a, you know, it, it's like mash without being obviously as dark. Mm. Yeah, in, in comedy wise, the comedy is actually a lot like the final series of Blackadder, set 
in World War One on the Western Front. Mm. Yeah, you're it's right. Same it is kind of dark comedy, and I wouldn't be surprised if when they wrote, you know, Blackadder goes forth, if you know they all were very aware of Joseph Heller as they were writing. And the moment where the book really changes gear is they're all at the beach, and Kid Sampson, one of the characters throughout the book, is out on the po- you know, pontoon, you know, a little bit out from the shore. And McWatt, one of the amazing pilots who loves low-flying over Yosarian's tent, decides he's going to low-fly over the pontoon. Mm. And because Kid Sampson trusts McWatt to the extent he does, they all trust McWatt because McWatt's flying is just amazing. Kid Sampson stands up on the pontoon. And whether it's a combination of the seventh wave lifts the pontoon or air pressure, suddenly the plane just falls for a second and the propeller chops Kid Sampson in half in front of everyone on the beach. Mm. And everyone watches the halves land. McWatt does a loop, spirals round, everyone on the beach is freaking, you know, running away from the beach back through the forest, back towards the base. McWatt then flies around the base and starts spiraling upward, upward, upward. You find out that he's got a new crew on board and he's meant to be getting them acclimatised. The next thing, uh, the right number of people in parachutes for the new crew jump out. And then McWatt points his plane at a mountain and flies it into a mountain. He survived the seven or eight months of flying missions twice a week. Mm. But the fact he's, for a lark, just tried to fly low to give everyone a surprise and just chopped one of his friends in half. That's too much to bear. And this is the point where the, the remaining characters, you know, Yosarian most obviously, because he's the one we care about most, mm. there's no more being able to hide in the subjective bubble of all of us in this together, spinning it as being something more than horror. Mm-hmm. And from that point onwards, all Yosarian can see is the real horror of things, which then leads into you know, when Luke was describing his final trip to Rome. Suddenly, Rome is bombed out, broken, mm-hmm. ugly. The people are hungry. The people are injured. There's people beating each other up on the streets. Mm-hmm. There's prostitutes who don't look beautiful anymore. They just look haggard and like their life is awful, which it is. And he's suddenly afraid in Rome that Rome is this menacing, dark place that is going to mess him up and is full of people who have been messed up by war. And that as, you know, a bombardier, he's contributed significantly to the messing up of this world. Mm. And the final quarter of the book, once we're in this gear, is really uncomfortable. One of the most uncomfortable points is Yosarian gets to the officers, was it the officers or the enlisted apartment? I think it's the enlisted Enlisted apartment. Yeah. And Arfi, who is a pig from his squadron, Mm. Arfi has raped the young woman who looks after the apartment, held her captive until curfew, and then thrown her out the window and she's died as she's hit the ground. And Yosarian works out what has happened and is saying to Arfi, the cops will come get you and you will go to jail. Arfi, what have you done? And then they hear sirens coming 
And then they hear the MPs getting out of vehicles. And then they hear the MPs coming up the stairs. And then they hear the MPs smashing the door to the apartment. And the MPs don't grab Afi for raping and murdering a young woman. Mm. They grab Yosarian for being absent without official leave. And hell, it gives you the final kick in the guts of the absurdity the machine doesn't care about the horror that's done to people. The machine cares that you went on leave without paperwork. And that's sort of the point where you're just like, whoa. Mm. Nearly 15 hours to get to this point of setting you up to go, any machine that lets you live in your bubble where you lose objectivity, where the machine cares more about the effective functioning of the machine than what the machine is doing to the world, you have to try and avoid being sucked into that. I feel with um, the f- when um, Kit Sampson dies and then McWatt dies, that's the first time the, the death comes to the island like that. Yeah, overtly. And, and I yeah. can imagine the headspace to be a bombardier where you are dropping bombs down on the city. You don't actually see the death and destruction firsthand. So I can imagine that you could box that up and say, well, I dropped the bombs. I don't know what happens after Mm -hmm. that. It's not me doing it. It's the bombs doing it. But at that moment when they see that plane tear Kit Samson apart and then see McWatt fly into the mountain, it all of a sudden becomes very real for them and there it is on the island and that's the moment that the veil is lifted. And then when, when you're right, when he goes through Rome and he starts seeing the tragedy, I found myself reflecting back on the first three quarters and I'm saying, oh, actually, no, this tragedy was there all the time. I just yeah. didn't see it. We because weren't allowed of to see it because we were seeing the world through their bubble of being the bombing crews needing happy downtime. Yeah. So we saw the happy downtime because that's all they could let themselves see. And Heller did the amazing job of writing it so that we don't question, are we only seeing part of it? You somehow accept because the way he's written it, you're seeing the picture as it is. Mm. Because you're so lost in the absurdity. You know, you don't look for reality when absurdities become normal. So that's another mm. sort of important part of the book, that once absurdity is normal, you you ask for or expect less reality from things. So that made me ask on completion of the book, is what absurdity do I accept today mm. just because it is makes it easier to it cope. makes it easier to cope yeah. or it just is because it's what it has been for the last i mean i'm 34 so for the last 34 years it's all i've known and then i think that comes back to it as you said earlier david what ties it back in beautifully to camus novel is once you ask that question you sort of can't unask that again yeah. like the, the veil lifts and you become aware of and i think that's what happened with you sarah is you eventually ask that question yeah and that's sort of what I think the book doc- documents. So, you know, what in our lives do we just accept mm. that we're oblivious to and what suffering or what what damage are we doing that we don't we aren't even aware of yeah. until somebody asks the question and the glass shatters. And this is the thing, Camus in A Happy Death gives us absurdity hard and early. Mm. He goes, yeah, you're going to see reality early and it's going to hurt. So... Get used to it. Learn to grimace, learn to smile. 
learn to balance hope and despair. Heller takes the different approach of letting us live in the absurd bubble. This is absurd, but it's it's sort of okay. The consciousness hasn't cut through until Kid Samson gets cut in half. So what a way to say, it's time for your consciousness to cut through and see the horror. To literally have Kid Samson cut in half. I feel this is a lot darker than Camus in the sense that oh, yeah. he, mm. he presented it as a way as, you know, we're talking to Eddie Jacku later. So that what's the quote? It's like, life can be beautiful if, um, you, if you make, make it, it so. so. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of the Camus point. This is really like, it's what you've just said before, uh, Luke, which was what 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 levels of absurdity are you tolerating? <laughs> yeah. Are you what? continuing to keep the delusion alive to, you know, stay away from pain further that what if you if if and if and when you realize what absurdity you're tolerating a can you do anything about it and b would the world even be a better place if you tried i I think with i think with these though it it seems like it's hard to get out of but i think these these structures only exist for for so long as people within them believe yeah, you in, can, in the system. Mm. Once Yosarian starts questioning the bubble, people get angry initially, I think because they realise their bubble is going to break. Mm. Yosarian's going to break their bubble for them. Mm. So he's hated, not because he's particularly difficult or awful, but because he is breaking the bubble. Mm-hmm. And yet a few of his friends, he realises his friend or had you know, worked all this out months before him. He suspects that other characters, you know, have a fair idea what's going on too. So it's, again, part of that chameleon idea. You'll never know when you're in the presence of someone who's worked out exactly what you're working out and who got their dose of consciousness a few months ago and you'd probably benefit from talking to them because at least you'd have company in not being able to hide reality or hide from reality. That seems like a a perfect place to end, gentlemen, because I think we've really come to the understanding of each other's understanding of the absurdity. So I'll say thank you, Luke, for joining us. Thank you again. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.